G'day, mate. 40 here. It's just a spectacular beach day here in G. And we, we got some monster waves, some big surf. What better time to talk about Samuel Alito and his, his crusade against a secular America. Right, this is from The New Yorker. It was published about three months ago. So, thoughtful essay here by Margaret Talbot. Grace, Justice Alito crusading. The future Fox America. News analyst Andrew Napolitano later offered the Princeton Alumni Weekly what might have been a more persuasive explanation. There were two types of conservatives at Princeton, those who were conservatives before Ronald Reagan and those who were conservatives after. If you told Ed Meese, Reagan's hardline attorney general, you were a member of CAP, that told him you weren't a new arrival. It was a way of saying, I'm the real thing. So much of what we do is influenced by other people. All right, so Ronald Reagan made many people conservatism cool again more socially acceptable, more popular. Like it's very hard to go against the crowd. For Alito, Yale Law School, too, was mined with countercultural bombs. In 2005, a member of Alito's class, Diane Kaplan, told the Yale Daily News that a lot of us were hippies, love children, political dissenters, draft dodgers. Kind of weird to hear about uh, people on the left being political dissenters when the left, you know, dominates almost all of our institutions, <laughs> right? It only dominates law schools, it, it dominates the professions, dominates law, dominates medicine, social work, dentistry, accounting. Right? The left dominates the media, much of Fortune 500 companies, non-governmental organizations, Right, the left dominates, so how exactly are people on the left, you know, these radical dissenters? She noted that Alito and his Princeton friends came to class with button-down collars and looking very serious. Well, how you dress is going to have a profound impact on you. Right, when you dress in a suit and a tie, right, that's going to affect you. So the more religious the Jew, the more likely they are to dress well, to, to dress up, to dress... You know, black suit, white shirt, that sort of thing. So, what you wear profoundly affects how you think and how you act. Alito has described his classmates as overwhelmingly liberal, but noted that there were a few of us conservatives kind of hiding. Among them, Clarence Thomas and John Bolton, who served briefly as President Donald Trump's national security advisor. Alito had come to Yale eager to study with one of his intellectual heroes, Alexander Bickle. So I am on my way to Botany Bay. Botany Bay is where Captain Cook landed in, I think, something like 1776. It's, uh, it's about four miles directly from here, but I'm going to go around the coast, so it'll be more than 10 miles probably. And so we're looking out right now at Coogee. And uh, if we go about seven miles that way, we'll end up at the Sydney Opera House. So that's the plan for today. So I wanted to pause here on the rocks above this magnificent ocean, do some live streaming. A charismatic and prolific scholar who believed that the Warren Court had indulged in egregious activism. 
but Alito wasn't placed in Bickle's constitutional law class. Alito's fr- So why do so many conservatives turn left when they join professions? Because it's very hard to turn against what the majority of your profession is doing. So Warren was a Republican, but he turned left on the court. And many, many conservatives appointed to courts turn left because it's human nature to want to be popular, to go along with the crowd, to, to fit in. So I'm sitting here kind of on the edge of the cliff, and I wouldn't be feeling nearly as at ease in, say, Los Angeles or New York City or San Francisco, sitting on the edge of the cliff in case some super predator came up behind me and just pushed me over. I mean, that's what happens in New York City. People stand as far away from the platform as possible there are so many crazy people and super predators who may very well push you in front of, you know, an unrushing train. Now, we got some predatory insects here in Australia, so we're going to keep an eye on them. Hope we don't see any uh, poisonous snakes. And Mark Dwyer, meanwhile, was assigned to the staunchly conservative scholar Robert Bork's course, and he later told the Times that Alito had seemed jealous. In one of the worst pairings of student and professor in course scheduling history, Alito ended up with Charles Reich, the eccentric counterculture guru who had written the best... I remember I was at acting school in 1994, and I got these four free acting classes. And so on my fourth acting class, I'm not planning to sign up for more. Uh, They paired me with someone, and the teacher said, oh, this, this could be an explosive combination. So the teacher kind of primed me to not get along with the person that I was going to do a scene with. And then after we did the scene and the teacher gave his reaction, I used the F word and the teacher threw me out of the class. So, yeah, when you're primed that, oh, you're not going to get along with this person, that can have a profound effect on you. I remember when my father was kicked out of the Seventh-day Adventist ministry, 1980, I was 14 years of age. And people, some people said who knew me, oh man, how's that going to affect Luke's relationship with the church? It's just going to destroy his relationship with the church. As a 14-year-old, I was happy to allow my father's disfellowship from the Seventh-day Adventist ministry that destroyed my relationship with the church because, you know, why did I want all the restrictions that came with being a Seventh-day Adventist? We'd just gotten the TV for the first time in the summer of 1980, and I saw a lot of things on TV that I wanted particularly sex and fame and glitz and glory, all those secular virtues. So I was happy to leave the Seventh-day Adventist Church behind and happy to have an excuse to do so. Manifesto, The Greening of America, an excerpt appeared in this magazine. Alito, having read the book, formally requested to switch out of the class, but he was told no. Reich loved flower child sensibilities as much as Alito hated them. He even saw bell bottoms as a form of rebellion worth validating. Before joining the Yale faculty, he had been a clerk for Justice. I remember after high school, so June 1984, I decided to move to Australia for a year with my brother. And I brought a suitcase of stuff. I hadn't been turned on to Crystal Light at that time, but I didn't really bring any decent work clothes. And so my brother, you know, lent me a lot of his clothes so that I could go out and look for a job. And he was kind of amazed I didn't have decent clothes. I went into my brother's closet and he had all these bell bottoms. And I uh, thought, oh, I'll wear these. But my brother told me, nah, that's not on. You can't wear bell bottoms. This is 1984, not 1978. 
he wouldn't let me wear bell bottoms to a job interview. And then there was a time I was working at uh, GGA Coles, which is the equivalent of Kmart. I got a job as a stock boy. And I saw these, what looked at like slip-on shoes. You know, they like, I think they call them skeeches. I'm wearing them now, right? So shoes like these, very comfortable. You just uh, slip them on. So I saw some and I, you know, I bought some for about two bucks. And uh, they were so comfortable. And uh, I walked out of work in my, in my new shoes. And uh, I don't get very far down Gundun Street in Gladstone. And people ask me, like, why I'm wearing slippers. So apparently there were slippers. There were no substitute for, for shoes. Ah, I like, uh, like common sense. Other thing that surprised me when I moved back to Australia is that almost everyone puts their clothes out to dry on a clothesline. Like in America, we always put our clothes, you know, in the dryer. But in Australia, they put it on the clothesline to save on electricity bills. That just seemed weird. I guess electricity prices were probably two, three times the equivalent of American electricity prices. They still do that. Right? Still people I live with, you know, put their clothes out on an indoor, you know, clothesline setup. And uh, the other thing I learned is that men don't blow dry their hair. I came to Australia in 1984 and was looking to borrow a hairdryer and I was taught, no, men, men don't blow dry their hair, that's for Sheila's. Hugo Black and a lawyer at elite firms. But by the time Alito arrived in his class, Reich had embarked on a long, strange trip as a public intellectual and a freewheeling seeker. Reich interviewed Jerry... What kind of people become public intellectuals? People who achieve success in one area of their life. I remember I broke the Mark Wallace HIV story in the San Fernando Valley that uh, Mark Wallace was a likely patient A, patient zero in this you know, ongoing outbreak of HIV in the, the porn industry. And uh, I was getting tens of thousands of readers to my blog every day. And uh, I feel a sense of entitlement from this attention. Now I'm going to transition to being a public intellectual. I was ready to leverage my scoop about HIV in the porn industry, becoming a public intellectual. And so this Professor Reich publishes an acclaimed book about the greening of America. One of these waves is going to come up here and get me. And uh, due to all the success he got for his book, The Greening of America, but aha, I'm, on, I'm now going to become a public intellectual. So people can be very well qualified to talk about one topic, but uh, then they get an overinflated sense of their worth. Think, ah, because I'm so acclaimed talking and writing about this one topic, people probably want to know what I think about all sorts of areas where I don't have any specialty. And here I am. Back to this New York article. Sam Alito's crusade against the secular America. It's not over, guys. Sam Alito ain't done yet. Garcia for Rolling Stone. And, in a law review article criticized police harassment of citizens, folding in his own unpleasant encounters with cops. Many students were charmed and inspired by Reich. Bill and Hillary Clinton both studied with him. When Bill Clinton became president, one of his environmental initiatives was called the Greening of the White House. Alito was not one of those students. 
In appearances and interviews, he has spoken disparagingly of Reich's most bizarre course. Reich, Alito said, told his students that he had a ticket to San Francisco in his desk, and at some point during the term, it was possible that there would be a note on the bulletin board that he had gone to San Francisco, and the course would then be over. I remember how shocked I was when I got to UCLA, and I took two classes. Man, that's getting closer. took two classes with economist Russell Roberts, who graduated with a PhD from University of Chicago. He now hosts uh, the podcast Econ Talk. And I was shocked that Russell Roberts, he took off like six days for Jewish holidays. And he'd announced well in advance. Like, I couldn't imagine that someone would take all these days off work for Jewish holidays. It wasn't something we had at Seventh-day Adventists. Alito recalled that, sure enough, he returned from Thanksgiving break to find just such a note. He joked to Crystal that he was self-taught in constitutional law. At Yale, Alito's occasional hijinks seemed to have been as old school as they were at Princeton. Grace told me that Mark Dwyer... Okay, getting secular blessings from uh, Glib Medley. And secular blessings to you, too. So, I've, I've kept up with my sponsees here in Australia and I don't know about you but I need new words for things so I remember after I'd have intense sex with my girlfriend she says you know how was that for you I'd say amazing she says amazing was that all it was like she wanted like new words and so the God word as someone who's been religious almost all his life and a believer like the God word <clears throat> can get really stale for me so I've been substituting reality and so instead of talking to my sponsees or talking to myself about having a new relationship with God, I talk about let's have a new relationship with reality. And so that's a way of talking that includes secular people. Take my sponsees, please. No, I need them. I need them because in, in their journey, you know, I, I, I get inspired. And I get energy for, for my journey. So I was talking to one sponsee this morning and he'd taken on a bunch of sponsees and suddenly for that one minute that he talked about working with his four new sponsees, like he got a whole new level of strength and clarity and passion in his voice. Like his voice just transformed when he talked about the work he was doing with his sponsees. So like, I think I maybe attract a lot of sponsees who have similar problems to me with narcissism getting diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder. And so if you're narcissistic, one of the healthiest ways that you can meet your need for attention and admiration is to take on sponsees, lots and lots of sponsees. And you're working with sponsees and you're guiding sponsees. Right? That fills your need for attention and significance. It's a way to get you know, admiration. And uh, you maybe have to do it in a healthy way that's uh, good for you, good for other people used to smoke a pipe and Sam took a rubber band and cut it up in little pieces and mixed it in with his tobacco Alito sometimes had a glass of scotch Grace recalled and Dwyer once put salt in Sam's ice cubes in December 2008 when Alito had been on the court for near so check out these ways mate really rare there are great ways could you but uh, this is an extraordinary day for surfing there's some marvelous waves out here. Like three years, he spoke at a fundraising gala in Washington for the right-wing magazine, The American Spectator. 
now that his position was secure for life, he could afford to be a little caustic about that whole 60s thing. He poked fun of the left's idealism by drawing a parallel between Barack Obama and Eugene McCarthy, the liberal icon who unsuccessfully ran for the presidency in 1968, while, in Alito's words, promising to restore hope and bring about change. No doubt to the bafflement of many younger people in the audience, he mocked the psychedelic band Country Joe and the Fish, as well as its Vietnam War protest song, I Feel Like I'm Fixin' to Die Rag. Alito complained that for the past 40 years, there have been places in this country, sort of like the island in Jurassic Park, where it's always been 1967. But if 60s inflected views still reigned in outposts like academia, there was cause for conservative triumphalism. During the Warren Court era, Alito said, the legal vanguard had imagined that the law would move dramatically leftward, but they turned out to be wrong. To laughter, he added, to coin another phrase, sweet dreams and flying machines in pieces on the ground. Alito was quoting the James Taylor song, Fire and Rain. Those lyrics, of course, aren't about the crushing of progressive dreams. They're about Taylor's addiction struggles and a friend's suicide. But you wouldn't expect a guy Lombardo fan to know that. Ah, so the New Yorkers poking fun of Sam Alito for not sticking to the originalist intention of the writer of, of uh, what, Fire and Ice. I've seen, I've seen fire and I've seen rain. All right, so... The New Yorker is poking fun at Sam Alito for not being an originalist with regard to pop music lyrics, but simultaneously poking fun at him for being a stodgy old originalist, intentionalist with regard to the founding documents of the United States of America. So originalism for me, but not for thee, is the New Yorker critique. No matter how much individual states, cities, clinics, and activists push back against Dobbs, it will impose a fundamental, and for a majority of Americans, undesired reordering of women's reproductive lives and expectations of equality. In 1992, when the court upheld Roe in the Casey opinion, it acknowledged what is known as a reliance interest. Two decades had passed since the court had first recognized a constitutional right to abortion, and since then, as the opinion put it, people have organized intimate relationships and made choices that define their views of themselves and their places in society in reliance on the availability of abortion in the event that contraception should fail. Oh, or in the event that uh, contraception wasn't used. <laughs> so, do you think the New Yorker would be praising... U.S. Supreme Court for its adherence to a reliance doctrine, say, with regard to slavery or with regard to any practice that it finds morally reprehensible? No. So, from a New Yorker perspective, you know, the reliance doctrine is more important than the lives of tens of thousands of babies. Moreover, the ability of women to participate equally in the economic and social life of the nation has... Okay. Did you know that uh, overturning Roe v. Wade is going to bar the ability of women to participate equally in the nation? Shocking. So, different groups are different gifts, right? Obviously, the gifts of men and women are different. 
you shouldn't expect you know equality in in all things uh, women can go for the gusto with their careers if they want simply they should abstain from having procreative sex right? keep your legs closed right? you won't need an abortion now, be responsible you won't need an abortion but uh, women's equality is threatened such a lame way of looking at life that you know everything has to be increasingly ever increasingly equal but uh, like a limit in calculus you know we never get there but thanks to the hectoring bullying educating function of left liberalism right, we're always being pushed more and more towards ever increasing levels of equality it's a fool's quest because people have different gifts sexes have different gifts different nations different religions different communities of different gifts and uh, ever pursuing equality is a fool's errand been facilitated by their ability to control their reproductive lives Alito's doc wait 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 can't they still control their reproductive lives simply abstain from having procreative sex say you can put it in my mouth or you can put it in my ass but you can't put it in my front door right then you can uh, control your procreative life you can control your reproduction simply abstain from having sex simply abstain from having the type of sex that leads to having babies this opinion dismissed this appraisal as an intangible form of reliance based on an empirical question that is hard for anyone and in particular for a court to assess though so it's not unknown for the Jewish girls who have horny boyfriends but want to maintain their technical virginity for their marriage limit their boyfriends to the to the mouth or the ass that's it that's where you can penetrate right because they they want to keep their virginity for marriage and on the one hand you can mock that but uh, they are reserving something special for the marriage it, it is a way of taking control now you're putting yourself in dangerous situation where you know the guy in the throes of passion and you perhaps in the throes of passion may not necessarily be disciplined right when when it comes to sexual passion you know men in particular but also women are often not not so disciplined so maybe it'd be best this is so important to you to uh, sexually abstain yet millions of Americans have constructed their lives with the expectation that abortion and birth control would be available well, birth control is still available, and uh, if you fear that abortion is not going to be available in your state, you can fly to another state, or you can abstain from doing the things that will get you an unwanted pregnancy. It doesn't sound like such a horror show to me. And surely part of the court's job is to ponder the likely consequences of upending such an expectation. Yeah, there are consequences to upending the reliance expectation. There are consequences to upholding Roe v. Wade and the murder of tens of thousands of babies. Right? There's no decision of significance that does not have consequences. Rachel Ribachet, a law professor at Temple University who specializes in health and family law, told me that courts decide all the time whether or not there are consequences to laws. Okay, she specializes in health and family law. So being very judicious about who you go to bed with would seem to me to be a key component of 
being healthy psychologically and physically right health isn't just physical it's also psychological right? the more people you go to bed with you know the more likely you are to you know, get messed up mentally socially psychologically in addition to physically seemed willing to accept the notion of reliance in only one realm property and contracts that's a really formalistic way to think about reliance a really crabbed notion of what we can know about a law's effects Rebouchet said. As the liberal justices pointed out in their dissent, the Dobbs decision endangers other Supreme Court precedents. In particular, it leaves vulnerable the cases that established unenumerated rights to privacy, intimacy, and bodily autonomy, rights that the Constitution did not explicitly name, but that previous court majorities had seen as reasonable extensions of the liberties protected by the 14th Amendment. Many Americans have also built their lives on precedents such as Griswold v. Connecticut, the 1965 case confirming the constitutional right of married couples to buy and use contraception. Well, many people have built their lives you know, with the understanding of a traditional family means a man married to a woman. Does that mean that uh, we should not have gay marriage because you know, many people rely on a particular understanding of what a family is and what a marriage is? God, these not beautiful waves, mate. We have the best waves here, don't we, folks? Loving v. Virginia, the 1967 case declaring bans on interracial marriage unconstitutional. Lawrence v. Texas, the 2003 case recognizing a right to same-sex intimacy. And Obergefell v. Hodges, the 2015 case recognizing a right to same-sex marriage. Would Alito grant that these decisions have created reliance interests? In Dobbs, Alito promised that those other precedents are safe and that abortion is different from other personal decisions because it destroys what the Mississippi law describes as an unborn human being. He insisted, nothing in this opinion should be understood to cast doubt on precedents that do not concern abortion. But Alito's assertion about the singular preciousness of a fetus does not alone create a legal standard. Neil Siegel, a Duke University law professor, told me, Because I said so is not a reason, not in parenting and not in law. The anchoring logic of Alito's opinion is that rights not stipulated in the Constitution pass muster only if they have long been part of the nation's traditions. By this standard, what is to preclude the undoing of the right to same-sex marriage guaranteed by Obergefell? Oh no, that would be the worst. Oh my God, what a hellscape we live in if Oberfell was overturned. I don't even imagine that, you know, that dark, dark day. Ah, there's a, there's a swimmer. Is he on a board? Right in the middle of your screen. Yeah, he's on a board. There's some magnificent ways, mate. So all rights can change when the situation changes. dissented in that case, saying that a right to same-sex marriage was contrary to long-established tradition. Well, it is, right? There's absolutely zero precedent in history for same-sex marriage. It's an entire new innovation of the past 30 years. Indeed, Clarence Thomas, in his Dobbs concurrence, argued that the particular cases protecting same-sex marriage and intimacy, along with contraception, were very much up for reconsideration. Thomas left out loving the 
interracial marriage case. The Dobbs dissent, issued by Stephen Breyer, Elena Kagan, and Sonia Sotomayor, sharply challenged Alito's assurances. Assume the majority is sincere in saying, for whatever reason, that it will go so far and no further, they wrote, Scout's Honor. Still, the future significance of today's opinion will be decided in the future, and law often has a way of evolving without regard to original intentions, a way of actually following where logic leads. In overturning Roe, the court bolstered not only the anti-abortion movement, but also the conservative legal movement, an effort associated with the Federalist Society, which, since its founding in 1982, has promoted an originalist jurisprudence based on narrow readings of the Constitution. Well, narrow as opposed to, you know, unlimitedly flexible. <laughs> so... The, the Peshat in Jewish terminology, the plain meaning of the text, as opposed to the allegorical meaning of the text and the mystical meaning of the text. All right? So, uh, it's not, not such an absurd position. Such readings often dovetail with many conservative policy goals, from the dismantling of the regulatory state to the defense of gun rights. If Roe had been upheld, even after Trump had loaded the court with self-described originalists, who, he promised, would overturn the decision, the movement might have reached its breaking point. Last winter, J. Joel Alicia, a former Alito clerk who now teaches law at the Catholic University of America, wrote in City Journal that there was growing tension in the movement between those who saw originalism as a means to achieving some other substantive end, and those for whom it was the only legitimate constitutional methodology. Yeah, that's a pretty good breakdown, a pretty significant difference. Uh, you don't always make your arguments on the basis of what you truly believe. Uh, in public policy and public discussions, you make arguments on the basis of you know, what's going to be most effective, not necessarily what's the most true. Some conservative skeptics of originalism were particularly frustrated with a 2020 majority opinion by Justice Gorsuch, concluding, ostensibly through originalist logic, that Title VII prohibitions on employment discrimination applied to gay and transgender people. Alito dissented, declaring that the inclusion of LGBTQ people in Title VII protections will threaten freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and personal privacy and safety. Yeah, you just can't increase rights for one group right, without taking away rights for another. Increase rights for minorities, you take away rights from majorities. And so liberals look at rights as something that you can just endlessly expand. They don't look at the zero-sum nature of, of many rights. If you got a good story, who cares about facts? If you don't have the facts or the story, then what do you do? If the court's originalists couldn't even successfully deploy their approach to overturn Roe, then what good was it? Alicia wrote that, for the conservative legal movement, the stakes in Dobbs could not be higher. It was either complete victory or crisis-inducing defeat. Alito's opinion was a complete victory. An analysis in National Review hailed the decision as the movement's crowning achievement. For Alito, Dobbs was also the culmination of a 16-year effort to make his mark on the court. 
When he first became a justice, he was often portrayed as a mini-me of another Italian-American Catholic from Trenton, Antonin Scalia. Some commentators even referred to him as Scalito. But, although the two justices frequently voted together, they were different in ways both temperamental and jurisprudential. So, I think Anne Corter hated the John Roberts appointment to Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, but she liked the Sam Alito appointment. So, it turns out uh, Anne was right, if you're a conservative. Alito could be as acerbic in his writing as the irrepressible Scalia, but he rarely seemed to be having a good time. Scalia's bold commitment to originalist readings of the Constitution sometimes led him to outcomes that he, as a law and order type, didn't much like, such as supporting the First Amendment claims of a flag-burning protester or upholding the Fourth Amendment rights of criminal defendants. Alito adopted a more elastic form of originalism, which has allowed him, with plodding consistency, to arrive at results that a loyal Republican would prefer. Whereas Scalia's admirers praised his intellectual commitment to originalism, Alito's admirers in the conservative legal movement often highlight his practical approach. At a recent American Enterprise Institute conference honoring the justice's jurisprudence, Keith Whittington, a professor of politics at Princeton, said that Alito's opinions can be a little frustrating if what you're looking for and thinking about is how to draw much broader themes out of his work as far as theoretical approaches that might apply. Yeah, so what's more important to you in your jurisprudence, in your life, in your politics, in your pundits? Is it principles or interests? So it sounds like from that description that Samuel Alito puts a higher priority on his group's interests rather than on jurisprudential principles. While that other Italian-American, right, he apparently put more emphasis on principles rather than interests. So I think there's a time and a place in life where you prioritize your interests over principles. And there's a time and a place to prioritize principles over interests. And I think it should always be uh, one or the other. So Antonin Scalia apparently always prioritize the principles over interests. ...to a wide array of cases, but it was refreshing, Whittington said, to see a justice really try to tie the arguments and the logic and the application to the details of the facts of the situation. From 2006 to 2020, four liberal justices sat on the court... According to Adam Feldman of the blog Empirical Scotus, Alito is the conservative justice who has joined with the liberals on the court the least often. He never once provided them with the swing vote in a 5-4 decision. Since the 2010 term, he's joined with three liberal justices and Roberts only once in an uncontroversial case that defined the phrase tangible object. Okay, that doesn't bother me. Does that bother you that uh, Sam Alito is not reaching across the aisle? A criminal statute. This past term, Alito got the most attention from Dobbs, but he also signed on to several other 6-3 decisions that achieved right-wing goals. He joined a far-reaching decision curtailing the Environmental Protection Agency's ability to limit carbon emissions without congressional authorization. He also joined an opinion compelling Maine to subsidize the tuition of students attending religious schools and a decision that expanded the right to carry firearms in. So when I hear about Samuel Alito's decisions, they seem to pretty much mesh with my vision for America, my understanding of what is right. 
Right? They, they seem to mesh with my principles and my interests. The reversal of Warren Court norms may be accelerating under today's lopsided majority, but Alito has been pushing the court rightward since his arrival. Richard L. Hassan, the election law expert, told me that Alito is uniformly hostile to voting rights and his... Wow, Samuel Alito is uniformly hostile to voting rights. So does that mean he doesn't think people should have the right to vote? Somehow I, I suspect that this is there's something of an exaggeration. I, I, I don't think that uh, Sam Alito is a poor... My God, look at that wave. Look at that surfer getting smashed. It, that wave looked like it was five times taller than the surfer right in the middle of the screen. There's no turning back America to a culture of values. America is a moral vacuum like the Netherlands. Uh, I'm not ready to give up on America yet, bro. I'm an American, not an American. But I don't know how we're going to turn back the clock on secularism. I think uh, secularism, ever-increasing amounts of it, is uh, pretty much inevitable. Been a major force in the court's support for corporate spending in campaigns. Alito encouraged the filing of suits that have allowed the court to curb the power of public sector unions. He authored the 5-4 opinion in Burwell v. Hobby Lobby Stores, 2014, which exempted some companies from providing contraception coverage to their employees, and he has helped advance a new regime of jurisprudence, strengthening the rights of religious people. Oh my God, this is awful. So Sam Alito believes that... Uh might have the right not to provide free birth control to your employees and and he's expanding the rights of, of religious people shocking especially conservative Christians and especially when their beliefs conflict with anti-discrimination law oh, no. in environmental cases according to a forthcoming law review article by Lazarus a Harvard law professor Alito has joined with the side supported by environmentalists only four out of 38 times, making him the justice least likely to do so. And those votes came only in cases decided unanimously. Nevertheless, Alito's biting tone in Dobbs represented a significant change. Stephen Vladek, a constitutional law professor at the University of Texas, told me, this was not a decision that is intended to convince anybody other than the folks who support its result. And I don't mean convince them that Alito and the other conservative justices are right. I mean convince them that they're principled. Oh my God, that's so sad. So Samuel Alito and Donald Trump and Ted Cruz, they're not out there trying to convince leftists that, uh, that they have their own principles. I don't, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't bother me if uh, Sam Alito is not trying to convinced leftists that he's principled. Dobbs revealed a block of justices who are increasingly untroubled by the declining public perception of the court because they think it's just pissed off progressives. Oh, you mean there are justices now on the court who believe in doing what is right rather than being popular? So you could just frame it that way. You now have justices who are more interested in doing what is right than in being popular. Sounds good to me. It's not just pissed off progressives. Since 2000, as a recent study in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences found, the court is estimated to have moved to the ideological right of roughly three quarters of all Americans. 
Okay, so when the court is to the left, right? I, I don't recall left-wing media wailing and gnashing their teeth that the courts have, have gotten out of touch with ordinary Americans. Like ordinary Americans have you know, passed all sorts of referendums, such as 187, hence providing benefits to illegal aliens, or Amendment 2 in Colorado, which uh, gave people exemptions from you know, anti-gay discrimination laws. Right? The will of the people has spoken. Left-wing courts overturned it, said it was unconstitutional. I just don't remember. I, I read the news back then. I don't remember a whole lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth that uh, the court has you know, fallen out of touch with regular Americans. In 2005, not long after Justice Sandra Day O'Connor decided to retire, President George W. Bush nominated Harriet Myers, the White House counsel and his longtime friend, to fill the vacancy. Congressional Republicans and Christian conservatives quickly turned against Myers, igniting what Bush describes in his memoir as a firestorm. Myers was insufficiently fancy, as Bush puts it. She lacked an Ivy League degree, and she hadn't been an appellate judge or a legal academic. Although she was an evangelical Christian, Myers was further damaged by fears that she was not anti-choice enough. She had once argued that self-determination mattered when it came to abortion. Bush's nomination of his confidant also smacked of cronyism. But, according to Anne Southworth, a law professor at UC Irvine who has studied the Federalist Society, a major part of what tanked her is that she was not seen as having come up through the conservative legal movement. Robert Bork told NPR that Meyer's selection was a blow to a movement that's been building up for 20 years and now has a great many people who are qualified for the court, but all of whom have been passed over. Bush soon withdrew Meyer's nomination. Bush turned next to Alito, partly because Myers had recommended him. Still, when the men met at the White House, Bush found him as reserved as they come and ill at ease. For the previous 15 years, Alito had been a federal court of appeals judge on the Third Circuit. As he later recollected in an onstage interview at Duke, his professional life in that role had been almost monastic. My days consist... So... If uh, the left controls institutions, right? if the left controls, dominates the means of cultural production, then one would expect pure elite people to be right-wing. And it's very hard to succeed in institutions that are dominated by a left-wing ideology when you are right-wing. So to get the, the credentials that would impress the left, it would mean you'd have to go into enemy territory and... Uh, Drive there. Not easy to do. To the office, walking up to my chambers, reading and writing, talking to no human beings except my assistants and my law clerks, getting back in my car, driving home, and doing the same thing the next day. Every once in a while, there'd be an oral argument, maybe once every six and a half weeks. Bush finally broke the ice with Alito by discussing baseball. Alito was such a Philadelphia Phillies fan that he had once spent a week at the team's fantasy camp, a Christmas gift from his wife, Martha Ann Alito, a former law librarian. They have two children, Philip, a lawyer, and Laura, a marketing executive. Unlike Myers, Alito had an extensive judicial record that included abortion cases. As Look, there are seasons in a man's life, right? So from about age 22 to 39... Most men are incredibly intent on building their kingdom. 
Now, a lot of big mockers when I lived in Brentwood back then in the 80s, many were still Republicans, but culturally they were liberal today, the elite of, uh, of Brentwood and 98% Democrats as the chat. So I'm trying to think, oh, wow, almost lost my iPhone into the ocean. Uh, and I'm paying for everything with my iPhone here. Just would use Apple Pay for everything. That would have been an absolute disaster. So, yeah, Alison Armstrong talks about the seasons of a man's life. At 22 to 39, you're intent on building your kingdom. And then, then you move into your, I think she calls it your prince stage, right? And uh, the older men get, you know, the, the more they want recognition and praise. And you'll never work as hard as you did 22 to 39. That's when you're building your kingdom. After that, you move into your prince and your king stage where you sit back and just want to rule your kingdom and you want to be recognized and you want to be praised and you want to be appreciated. But uh, 22 to 39, which is you know, probably the time period that uh, Samuel Alito was talking about there, that men typically are absolutely fixated on building their careers. And that's normal, natural, and healthy. As men move into their 40s and 50s, they start making more time for their hobbies, their interests, their friends, their families. Appellate court judge, he was the sole dissenter in a 1991 case that struck down a portion of a Pennsylvania law requiring women, with few exceptions, to notify their husbands before obtaining an abortion. A year later, when that case made it to the Supreme Court, as Casey, the justices decided that the spousal notification rule posed an undue Equally reassuring to conservatives was Alito's service in the Reagan administration's Justice Department. Under Edwin Meese, it had attracted young lawyers itching to roll back abortion rights, certain protections for criminal defendants, and affirmative action, which the administration portrayed as reverse discrimination against whites. Alito had joined the Justice Department in 1981, working in the office of the Solicitor General. Many of his colleagues were civil servants who didn't share his political views. Alito has said that he was initially a secret conservative. In 1985, he began slipping out of the office to attend monthly lunch meetings hosted by the Federalist Society. Yeah, if you think that uh, most people around you are hostile to conservatives, then it would make sense that you would hide your conservatism. But when you feel safe, secure, confident, uh, you're going to be more out with your conservatism. It's not just uh, homosexuals who have to hide who they are. At a Chinese restaurant called The Empress. At one such gathering, he ran into Charles Freed, then the acting solicitor general. Oh, what a surprise to see you here, Freed said. This is like meeting a friend at a bordello. Freed, now a law professor at Harvard, told me that Alito had been a pleasant and cultivated colleague and a fine writer who helped him craft arguments for government cases before the Supreme Court. At the time, the Reagan administration was pushing the idea that affirmative action policies should have victim specificity, benefiting only individuals directly subjected to discrimination. Alito, Freed recalled, came up with some choice lines, such as... Henry Aaron would not be regarded as the all-time home run king, and he would not be a model for youth if the fences had been moved in whenever he came to the plate. They're for fail. Yeah, ambitious men are likely to hide their cons conservative thinking, says the uh, chat. Right? 
They're a section Persian Jewish men because they have a healthy view of what it means to be their own man. That's true. Yeah, Persian Jews don't uh, don't try to hide their MAGA or conservative or right-wing tendencies. In 1986, the court repudiated victim specificity, declaring the purpose of affirmative action is not to make identified victims whole, but rather to dismantle prior patterns of employment discrimination and to prevent discrimination in the future. Yeah, and there's no evidence that there's ever you know, significant discrimination. Right? The reason that different groups get different life results is that they have different gifts. Right? Employers weren't leaving millions of dollars on the table by you know, being racially bigoted. Capitalism doesn't work that way. Persian women expect men to be willful and forceful about their weight and their opinions. I really like Persians, both Persian men and Persian women. While at the Solicitor General's office, Alito wrote a memo defending police officers' right to shoot fleeing suspects regardless of the threat they posed. The case involved a 15-year-old black boy, Edward Garner, who, according to Alito's memo, was killed by a Memphis police officer who could see that his target did not appear to be armed. Garner was carrying a purse containing $10. An appellate court had upheld a civil rights case brought by Garner's father against the Memphis Police Department and city officials. The state of Tennessee was now appealing to the Supreme Court. Alito wrote, Any rule permitting the use of deadly force to stop a fleeing suspect must rest on the general principle that the state is justified in using whatever force is necessary to enforce its laws. Yeah, I think I side with Sam Alito there. I think most of the time... My chat says, I grew up in a predominantly Ashkenazi family, so I'm Sephardic ancestry. My family is mostly Ashkenazi, very liberal. I'm one of the few exceptions, and I take a lot of heat for this. Now, I think that most of the time when uh, police shoot a fleeing suspect, the, the world is better off. Right? Most uh, police suspects who run away from police are not particularly righteous people. Right? They're usually bad guys. Assuming that a fleeing felony suspect is entirely rational, what he is saying, in effect, is kill me or allow me to escape, at least for now. If every suspect could evade arrest by putting the state to this choice, societal order would quickly break down. Yeah, I agree with, with Sam Alito. Right? The, the majority view now among elites is that uh, black people should not be arrested unless they consent to be arrested. But if they resist arrest, then uh, police are not allowed to use any force whatsoever. They simply decline, no, I don't think I want to be arrested today, then uh, please should just leave them alone. The Supreme Court sided with Garner's father. Writing for the majority, Justice Byron White declared, it is not better that all felony suspects die than that they escape. At the Justice Department, Alito also became friendly with Charles Cooper, a hard-line conservative deputy in the Civil Rights Division. Being suspects shouldn't think twice about shooting anyone in the back and carjacking them. Cops should be allowed to. Yeah. We're talking about super predators here. We're talking about mainly bad guys. In 2013, with Alito on the Supreme Court, Cooper argued against same-sex marriage. In 1985, Cooper was asked to leave the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel, and he urged Alito to apply to become his deputy. Alito pursued the position, candidly declaring in a memo... I am and always have been a conservative and an adherent to the same philosophical views that I believe are central to this administration. 
He'd even tried to write commentary for right-wing magazines, though his submissions to outlets such as National Review and The American Spectator were rejected. In the memo, Alito noted that he was particularly proud of my contributions in recent cases in which the government has argued in the Supreme Court that racial and ethnic quotas should not be allowed and that the Constitution does not protect a right to abortion. Alito got the promotion. Among the Reagan administration policies that he helped promulgate was one shielding employees who fired people with AIDS because of fear of contagion, whether reasonable or not. In 1986, Alito told the Washington... Yeah, boy. Elliot laughed. It's pretty sad that uh, that wasn't held up, right? So, if someone's got a deadly disease, like, you should be legally forced to not discriminate against them in, in any way. Like, if someone's got, like, nasty postures on their face, you're not allowed to discriminate against them. Like, it just simply makes you uncomfortable, creeps you out, right? What about the, you know, the threat of uh, some accidents and, uh, and their blood, trip and fall in the workplace, transmitting HIV? I think people should be able to hire who they want, but for whatever reason, because there should be a sense of comfort in the workplace. The workplace is going to be much more efficient if people are comfortable there. Right. Your team is going to do much better work. Everyone's going to be happier if you're comfortable with the other people in the office. In Los Angeles, there are 4,000 police on duty at any time. There are at least 100,000 gang members. That's only a fraction of the bad actors on the streets of L.A. Yeah, good point. That's uh, why I probably wouldn't stand here in, in L.A. There are just not more bad guys. How to do mischief. But uh, Sydney's one of the safest big cities in the world. Absolute pleasure to be here. Post. We certainly did not want to encourage irrational discrimination, but we had to interpret the law as it stands. And extant laws did not regulate what a private employer can do if he has a fear of a contagious disease. A liberal former colleague of Alito's from the Solicitor General's office told me that in the 80s, Alito had seemed like an establishment Republican, someone who wouldn't put ideology above the proper functioning of the system, which I thought stare decisis was a big piece of. So, no, I haven't seen any crack houses in Sydney. Those baddies are priced out. Yeah, they can't afford uh, the eastern suburbs. So people on the eastern suburbs, uh, they talk about western Sydney, right? Like inland, like it's a dangerous wild west kind of place. So, yeah, on the eastern suburbs of Sydney, the housing prices discriminate so you don't have to. Stare decisis, Latin for let the decision stand, is the doctrinal preference for upholding precedence. The colleague observed, the SG's office maintained a kind of cult of smartness. You couldn't be thinking too weirdly. There was this elite meritocracy that, we thought, dissolved hard ideological tensions. These assumptions now struck the colleague as naive. Elite yeah, of course there are going to be ideologies, even when the emphasis is on competence. Right? You can't live without a hero system. Right? You can't live without some way of conceiving of yourself as heroic. And that means loyalty to a particular community or to your own greatness. 
there's no you know, non-ideological approach to the law. Oh, was always very tightly wrapped, he recalled, adding, I now wonder what he was thinking all those times he didn't say anything. At Alito's Supreme Court confirmation hearings, he performed with steely equanimity. Andrew Napolitano, his former college classmate, told the Princeton Alumni Weekly that he knew Alito would maintain his composure, joking, he doesn't have a temper to lose. Alito said all the things about Roe and Casey that anti-abortion jurists must say to ensure confirmation. He called stare decisis a fundamental part of our legal system. When Senator Arlen Specter, a Republican at the time, asked him if Casey qualified as a super precedent, he responded with a wan witticism. I personally would not get into classifying precedents as super precedents or super duper precedents or any sort of categorization like that. It sort of reminds me of the size of laundry detergent in the supermarket. I agree with the underlying thought that when a precedent is reaffirmed, that strengthens the precedent. Oh, just imagine Sam Alito said the things he needed to say to get to the places he wanted to go. Unbelievable. Alito said that his Reagan-era assertion that the Constitution didn't guarantee a right to abortion was merely what I thought in 1985, from my vantage point in 1985. He told the Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer that if the abortion issue came before him on the court, he would first apply stare decisis. If he got beyond that, he would go through the whole judicial decision-making process before reaching a conclusion. When Schumer asked if he still doubted that a right to abortion could be derived from the Constitution, Alito deflected by protesting, you are asking me how I would decide an issue. Alito acknowledged that he held traditional values, but in the mildest terms. He said that he believed in defending the ability to raise children the way you want and in students' right to express their religious views at school. Some of Alito's supporters from this period now wonder how much of the tepid persona he projected back then was genuine. Oh, this is shocking. Absolutely shocking. He projected the persona that he thought would be most effective. Okay, most of us do that. Right, most of us project a persona in a job interview that's not necessarily 100% authentic to how we're going to conduct ourselves at work. And employers in a job interview don't present the job in a way that's 100% authentic to what the job will actually be. Okay, I'm going to resume my hike to Botany Bay. Talk to you later. Okay, so... I'm a little wobbly, I've walked 15 miles today and uh, I just saw this old man with a walker like pushing himself into a busy street and I was so tired and so morally desensitized by life in Los Angeles I didn't even try to do anything. Like I'm afraid that I'm a bad man. Like if he wants to push his bloody walker you know, into a street filled with you know, whizzing traffic going by like I was too tired and my bladder was too full. To protest, right? I just like walked about five miles without any water. So I stopped, bought three liters of water for about three bucks, and drank it all down in the course of about 40 minutes. And uh, the power of situation, like normally, you know, the paragon of moral leadership, you know, you'd think that I would be doing the right thing. But uh, the bladder was too full. I was too tired. Okay. 
And uh, this Aussie shop girl came running out and said, you okay? So I, I, deferred, I deferred that moral task to someone else. But anyway, I see it on Twitter. Twitter's burning up because, you know, Kanye and you know, Nick Fuentes are meeting up and like it's Mar-a-Lago and it's like, you know, this great threat to, to Jews and to Western civilization. I don't think so, right? I don't think that Kanye and Nick, you know, get up in the morning and think about, you know, what can we do to the Jews today? I think this is really about people who have their own interests and they see their own group interests and they, they see that there are sacred groups and groups you can't criticize and uh, you know, Nick Fuentes, he you know, loves Christianity, and so it's okay, normal, natural that he wants a particular type of America. But he, you know, may have some negative feelings about Jews. Kanye, I'm pretty sure he's had a lot of experiences with Jews. And when you have intense relationships with people, or in the t- case of Kanye, or in the case of Nick Fuentes. When you have clashing group interests, then they express itself with some you know, negative sentiments towards Jews. So I just don't like the label Holocaust denier or you know, anti Semite. Yeah, some of what Nick says is anti Jewish. He has uh, mocked using religion, using the Holocaust as religion. What, what emanates the, animates these two guys more than their attitudes towards Jews is that they want to be famous. They want to be the, you know, the center of attention. They want to be edgy. They want to be exciting. And uh, Nick Fuentes and Milo Yiannopoulos and Kanye, they always like to be on the edge of what's new and exciting. And when you keep looking for that which is new and exciting, often makes some really bad decisions. So Kanye's probably cost himself a billion dollars. Uh, Nick Fuentes, his life has become a nightmare in many ways. But uh, I don't think they're, they're getting together to plot genocide. Right? I don't think they're primarily getting together to how can we take down Jewish power. These are two attention-seeking junkies trying to stay relevant, trying to stay cutting edge. And I think that's that's dominant. Like for some people, you know, hatred of Jews is dominant. For other people, you know, hatred of blacks or gays is dominant. But for Kanye and Fuentes, just love of attention. Right? That's what's dominant. That's what's driving them. This is not the onesie conference. Right? They're not making plans for where they're going to ship the Jews off. This is not the end of Western civilization. This is not you know, Donald Trump you know, signing on with Kanye and Nick Fuentes and their evil plans against the Jews. These are people with you know, social media disease. I just want to dominate the news cycle, the, the Twitter cycle. I love 
have people talking about them. And they're willing to do absolutely crazy things to maintain that. Now, do I think that there are some genuine uh, Jewish skeptical, even anti-Jewish sentiments with Kanye and Nick? Absolutely. But I don't think that's what's dominant for them. People are complicated. So, to the degree that uh, the Anti-Defamation League and Jewish organizations have come down like a ton of bricks on Kanye West and Kyrie Irving, right, that also provokes a backlash. Right? It's not like looking at my other phone for, for directions. It's not like you can just attack people and there are going to be no consequences. Right? So, the harder EDL and Jewish organizations come down on Kanye, Nick Fuentes, and Kyrie Irving, the more of a backlash you're going to spark. So two people probably never thought about each other, <laughs> never felt like they had much in common. Well, now you've created a bond between them. So we've got two you know, fundamentally antisocial, social misfits, tension-hungry blokes, getting together. And why are they so attention hungry? Because these are misfits. These are people who can't they maintain relations in real life. But uh, they get fed from social media. They get, they get a feeling of satisfaction from you know, being talked about, being in the news, you know, compelling people's attention. So I thought the response to Kyrie Irving in particular was disproportionate. Now, Kyrie, Kanye, Nick, they both made their own beds. Right? They're not innocent victims who are just you know, being maligned for no reason whatsoever. But, uh, sometimes when you crack down on people, the backlash that you cause going to be even even greater than the original problem. So great job ADL. You may have uh, provoked something that's even more intense than what it would have been if uh, your initial reaction had been more sober. all these horrible things. It's really just attention seeking. It's just, hey, look at me, I'm so edgy. Most people don't have a thoughtful, coherent political ideology. They just tend to have reactions. They, they feel something, they see something experience something, you respond. It's times like this that I think that we all need the dulcet tones of Mark Shapiro to uh, kind of settle us down. But uh, first of all, what does Richard Spencer have to say? This is probably headed 
the disaster, talking about Kanye and Nick Fuentes, and I'm not on board regardless. That said, there's something I admire about Fuentes, incessantly moving forward, taking risks, pushing things to their conclusion. Too bad everything has led to Kanyeism, but it'll be entertaining. Okay, but uh, what about what about Mark Shapiro? What what does what does Mr. Shapiro have to say? And let us let us learn from this great professor of modern Jewish thought as we try to process. Are you processing with me? Right, let's uh, process together. What what the hell's going on here with uh, Fuentes and Kanye West? Welcome, everybody. Part three of our uh, Okay. We'll, we'll learn some Torah. We'll, we'll wash our souls in the wellsprings of Torah. If, uh, we never get it to play. Not so easy doing it all live. Let it give or give me trouble. 16 miles under my belt. Three liters of water in my stomach. The show must go on. Okay. We did this earlier. Let me fast forward and get to the good stuff. So, uh, because he learns philosophy, he comes and he starts spouting uh, some ideas. Uh, occasionally, he'll say it. I'll say it during Kiddush or during Torah reading between the Leahs. I'll whisper something to you like, hey, you, you really believe this? And he says something like that and listen to it. Okay, this is Mark Shapiro talking about how do you handle a heretic? And he quotes a rabbi saying, don't be so quick to call people heretics. And you could expand this to say, don't be so quick to call people anti-Semites and Holocaust deniers. It's not absolutely necessary. He says he doesn't... Um, you know, he doesn't continuously or, you know, he's sort of haphazard as opposed to being strong and, you know, on a continuous uh, firm in his denial of uh, Torah matters. Now, I can't help thinking, and correct me if I'm wrong, that this is like an underhanded sort of inside joke. Uh, there's a phrase, I will not elaborate on it, Maksha Atzmo Ladas. Ooh, uh, don't let the guy in here that. that's what he says here. The Eno Maksha Atzmo. I, I've never seen this, and I've looked at anyone else use this expression uh, in the way he's using it. Uh, so I, 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 that, that's already nivel pet, in my opinion. That's that means me improper that speech. Me. And I looked. I mean, it doesn't mean I have, just because I looked, uh, doesn't mean I found everything. But I searched to find if any other Rishonim 
That means 11th, 12th century rabbis. You can show me there are other Mishonim that use language like that. I am holding by my opinion that we're seeing Nivol Peh right here. Improper speech. Nivol Peh, actually, is a negation of Gates, but the Mishibish we call it Nivol Peh. So, uh, and then he goes on. He says, unless you're firm as a heretic, as opposed to justification of a, uh, when the spirit comes on you, whisper in ideas, you're not old enough to cover a scum or a mint. Uh, and even don't be so quick for people if you heretics are an actual heretic that is you say it explicitly and you're firm on this uh, we don't go backwards uh, we don't say that uh, you know we, it begins from this point on we don't say sources that you know safe for should cut something in we don't say that if it's a big man that we've already grown two years ago this sort of that unless we have evidence of it we assume that he's only a so, uh, just to let me read, uh, this is uh, summarizing what uh, Jacob says. Here you see, he's downgrading the Book of Esther. He's regarding as a mere temple. He's condoning the study of philosophy. Not only are doubts and matters of faith tolerated, but they're attributed to the great ones of Israel. And I'll go even further. That uh, you know, the idea he basically is Matar here, being a cynical apocalypse. You know, the guy who. Uh, as opposed to someone who uh, is, uh, you know, uh, a strong uh, strong type of a heretic. Uh, and this is signed, as you can see, Asher uh, Barabar Bichil. signed by the Rush. The Rush was so opposed to philosophy. He's the last person who would uh, support philosophy. We'll see another Shuba as well. Uh, um, even the Rush could have found for some people philosophy, but the Rush was Talmud only. He's like the classic example of a Talmudist and only a Talmudist. We have very few of these Talmudists. All the evil Talmudists also either did Parshanut, uh, they brought Humish, Nach, or they did philosophy, they did mysticism. Almost all of them did. The Rush is like the one example I can think of. Well, there are some others, but he's like the famous classic example where all he did was he's like a modern day Rosh Hashiva. Just Shas and Posty. We have no evidence of him doing anything else. And this is the truth that the Rush wrote. No way. And this is an invention of Shaul Berlin and the Gnomes who all realize this. And, uh, so this is one Now, this it doesn't deal with what This is more of the, the Berlin's heretical side undermining Judaism, maybe opening up for reform. We will see soon a tshuva in which the entire reform program is set out. Okay, uh, we have some time. Let me show you another tshuva. Uh, actually, no, I don't have it here. Uh, I didn't make the copy of it. But it's 2.51. And uh, that's a long one. And in this tshuva, he deals with uh, principles of faith. Something that I've had uh, an interest in for a long time. Uh, in fact, I have to tell you, in the new Hakira, I just got it. This is uh, winter 2022. All sorts of good stuff in here. You all up on, on your Hikira subscriptions? Page 107 to uh, 151. You have an entire article, a lengthy article called uh, Devoted to Mark Shapiro's Analysis by Mighty Circuit Principles. We appraise from Vassal Sachachevsky. 
Musmach of Beis Medrash Gavoa in Lakewood, and also someone who's now studying at Toro College. I have to say, although he disagrees with me, you can only be honored if someone, Tom Tuffin, if someone takes the time, it must have taken him months, to um, subject uh, my work of over 20 years, about 20 years ago almost, to such detailed analysis. Even if in the end, in the end it's not it's not quite attention to errors. It's different ways of reading. It's just a different approach. I have more of the esoteric approach, and uh, it could be I'll even agree and acknowledge some of his uh, points, but uh, I feel very honored that uh, this, and it's a, it's a Chobadika article, the way scholarship should be done. Unlike uh, another article that was written also last year, which uh, is very different. And also, and right after that, you have uh, another lengthy article against Joshua Berman, uh, in his recent book. So, uh, but I, I know a bit uh, about the principles of faith, and uh, so this chuva of the Basomim Rosh has always interested me number uh, 251. So what, what, is, what does he say at 251? This is, a, uh, this is also signed by the Rush, although uh, he signs it like an abbreviation of his name. And uh, it deals with principles of faith. So let me just uh, summarize for you what, uh, well, you know what, I, I, uh, let me just read uh, Jacob's summary for you. Summarize Jacob's summary for you. Um, what appears here is just uh, his major point is one of his major points. The principle of faith in one generation is not a new generation. I think it needs to be updated with the times. And what's the principle now? Solomon And Solomon Chester knows that this is really not what the Russian is. And he even says that the article, Solomon, but Solomon Chester likes Solomon's position, and he says that this is the best approach to go about And it changes. Of course, that means not dogma. Dogma that changes is not dogma. The definition of is eternal truth. But, uh, so here is. Uh, uh, oh, you're right, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's uh, never with a man involved, right? I just saw you say it there. You're right. I was thinking of Nabal. Nabal, which is a term. Okay, let me read you what uh, sometimes we all slip. Thank you. Uh, let me read you what Jacob's now summarizes. Because I can read it. Uh, all the things he says as follows. He said, so which. First of all, the Rambam says that he came up with his own reasoning, these principles, so they're not going to bind us. Then he says, which principles are we formulated depends on the spiritual climate. And then he says that, uh, like, there used to not be a principle of the coming of the Messiah, now it is. Uh, uh, the only true principle is that God has made a covenant with his name. He desires our well-being and happiness. That's the major principle, and he wants us to reflect on why we have to endure such a long exile. But this is then he says, oh, I have to read you this unbelievable what he really attributes to us. There's nothing like this in the uh, traditional Rishonic literature. He says, if you can ever imagine, in Chas Veshalom, I have Sharon Leeds there, if you can ever imagine, ki agiyazman, that a time would come, shemishpatei ha-Torah u-mitzvotel, that the laws of the Torah, 
Yaviu Ra'a Uma will cause problems for us. Mitzvah is a commandment. So that's the rush raving it in medieval times, but now you're in the, in the 18th century. In the 18th century, well, certainly the mitzvahs don't give a lot of people happiness. They cause a lot of problems, and they prevent you from uh, integrating in under society and going to the university because you can't go on Saturday, all these sorts of things. So what he's done is he's given the rush. He's had the rush say that in theory, if it ever happens, that the commandments uh, are problematic and you don't get happiness then you can reject them. And God wants you to reject them. But of course, this will never happen because the Torah is eternal. But if it ever would happen, God doesn't want you to be upset. If observing Shabbos causes you pain and it bothers you, God doesn't want you to be bothered because God loves you and he wants you to be happy and the Torah is supposed to make you happy. And if it doesn't make you happy, you can um, get it off. And then, so then and Jacob says, the rush continues at length to convey the program of early reform as it was adopted in the late 18th century Berlin. Very concealed here are all the trends that became so prominent in the early reform movement. One, the Messianic age is not necessarily one in which the temple will be rebuilt. Theoretically, there may come a time when observance of the Mitzvot may become detrimental to Israel's well-being and it have to be given up. The reason why the Jewish people fails to find the answers to his problems is because it's overlaid the essential Torah with the practices it is made up. He, later on, the, the rush, in quotes, talks about all the superstitions that people have done. And then uh, Jacob says, all that is needed to give the game away is for the rush to use the word enlightened. But the enlightened to read the responsive could have no doubts as to its intention. I, I just think it's hilarious that Jacob said this because uh, I think Jacob was looking at the concentrating on the last section um, this is the way he, because if you looked at the earlier section he would say and I marked it uh, or he, I, I guess he saw it but he doesn't indicate it he uses the word masculine twice masculine meaning now the word masculine also appears in the earlier times of masculine zero bizarre archaea but uh, he does use the word masculine so if you read the word masculine not as a medieval usage of it, you can actually read it as, uh, as muscular and uh, everything reads uh, you know, perfect as, as proto-reform you have, as, as Jacobson correctly says it, you have all the elements of what's going to become reform Judaism in this very response, and we have one more uh, one more response to do, but we will do that next time, uh, and then we'll move into um, 
Yeah, that's kind of incredible. Reform, you then have to observe Jewish law if it makes you unhappy. I think basically with the... Um, you can't be an open reformer. See, I'm not sure whether uh, Schulberg is a reformer or just uh, someone who wants to tear it down. And when you see a tshuva like this, it seems like he's uh, not trying to tear it down. He's trying to create like a deist so, uh, Shaul Berlin, 19th century Orthodox rabbi, who published some major forgeries. And this, this notion that uh, God just wants us to be happy, so keeping the Sabbath, keeping the commandments that makes us unhappy, then we don't have to do them. That's pretty radical, but to an extent, this is how Judaism works, right? Even most orthodox of Jews don't observe everything. Like everybody to varying extents who is observant in Judaism picks and chooses. And people pick and choose on the basis of how congenial these uh, commandments are. And it ties back into Nick Fuentes' Kanye West thing. These people have come together because it's congenial for them at this time and place. Right? Just like a Jew may be fairly secular, and then he gets married and has kids, wants to raise his kids within a community, realizes it's a lot easier to do that if we're Sabbath observant, if we're Orthodox. Or you decide what kind of family life you want to have, and then you choose religiosity or lack thereof that accords with that. And so people make all sorts of decisions that have ideological ramification, but they often just begin on a practical basis, like Kanye and Nick are coming together on a practical basis, giving each other support, capturing attention, wanting to be in the news, wanting to be edgy, wanting to follow their thinking to its logical conclusions. And so one thing leads to another, just as one mitzvah leads to another mitzvah, so one avera, one sin, leads to another sin. So here they are, like two, two socially ostracized dudes. Okay, Bay Gardens. Very nice. Whew. So, some good stuff here from uh, Mark Shapiro. Certain amount of bread, the bread is a My question is, uh, a slice of bread. Is what, what, what about, can you have a suda without a kazayat bread? Suda uh, means a, a celebratory meal. Suda, does a suda need to have a kazayat bread? That's my question, and there's Uh, 
So you can ask your local posake, uh, do you need to have bread? And if he says yes, you need to have bread on Purim, ask him why. What, what's the basis? So traditionally, what's the a meal isn't considered a meal bread, uh, in Judaism unless you eat bread. And do you need to have basar? Hadassah says, Zosh, the Jews of Sing Song by Ron Aarons. We mean Sing Sing, it should be, I guess. Uh, um, and Tough Jews by Rich Cohen and, and the prison minion. Yeah, there's uh, the Jews I'm speaking about, though, don't worry about so much about minion. But, uh, I mean, the, the gangsters. Gangster but Jews. you're right, there's a lot of uh, a lot of books. But these are just the ones that... And Jenna Jocelyn, Jenna Jocelyn she's, she's like a real historian, not just... Uh, interested in good stories, but uh, Sugarman's book, uh, he's spoken at all the Chabad's around the country, and uh, he's a character, his son is a, this is all it's not secret, if you live in Boca, you know his son's one of the rabbis down there and the look, I grew up with him and his, uh, he's a character uh, go, go to one of his videos online to see what Danny says that Bratislava is also so for graves as opposed to going allowable space in spite of the roof overhead yes, that was before I said it, yes, they built it with a fortune Every time I read, I listen to the classes, 
I misspeak. You know, I'm speaking quickly. I'm saying a lot of things. You're not written down. It's coming off the top of my head. It's so easy to misspeak. And I know with politicians, when they say they misspeak, uh, everyone uh, rolls their eyes. But I can tell you, it's, and most of the time, it's probably deserving to roll your eyes. But I can tell you that misspeaking is a... Uh, now, I'm not talking about misspeaking when someone says... Uh, were you there? And they say no. And then you have the video, they were there, and they say they misspeak. I'm talking about uh, the other stuff. Uh, you may, mistakes can easily be made. Uh, okay, let me get back now to the questions. Uh, Thomas says that Justice Van Cohen, I think in his memoir, says that when his ostracist came to high school visit the cathedral to see the artwork, he had to wait outside because of the authority. Uh, you know, I remember him describing uh, going to the cathedrals. And now, uh, now I do remember, I cited this in my article on Eliza Bernadette's Jews on the visit churches. But I didn't remember about him standing outside. But that is the... And he was brought by uh, his teacher, who was a well-known figure in German orthodoxy. But that, that is the minimum. I don't know of anyone who says that as a general rule, you should do it. So that's why we avoid it. So we don't have, but I was a little surprised to see the number one sword saying that if you feel that it's important for professional or social reasons that you can go to a non and be matame for a non-Jew that's uh I don't know I don't think that other post scheme accept this uh, that's what he says post scheme of rabbis to decide Jewish law was because the kids were descendants while with Berlin it's against history uh, yeah, no, but it, it, I, the issue was, I wasn't talking about Busha, I was saying that sometimes you could have great forefathers, and we see what happens to the descendants, and uh, we don't think it reflects poorly, or usually don't think it reflects poorly, uh, these things happen, uh, especially in the 18th century, if you know everyone, all the great heretics were descended from uh, Rabbanu, basically, or, because everyone was religious. So, but that's what the sniper says. I guess that's what people believe the Sarah was a forgery, the book of the Zohar was written by Rashmi. Well, yeah, all the uh, the Rabbanim uh, know about the Sami Rosh think it's a forgery, but they also believe the Zohar was written by Rashmi. And then uh, the Pony, that's the standard view. If the standard rabbinic view is that the Sami Rosh is a forgery, this Rabbi Amar is an outlaw publishing this book saying that it's not. And the standard rabbinic view is that the Zohar is written by Rashmi, absolutely. Mel says, Rabbi David Katz did a biography of Rishmo with Lodna a couple of weeks ago. Ah, I, I've only listened to a few of Rabbi David Katz's talks. I, uh, I highly encourage everyone not to, well, not to do it during this time, but he doesn't conflict with us. Uh, I don't think it's a problem. I don't consider it competition. We each do our own thing, and uh, I've already mentioned his uh, wonderful dissertation on the Yehuda. So, uh, thank you for that, Mel. Many, many people believe that the Zohar was written by Rashi, even though they didn't know the Sunday's Fortune, the two are totally unrelated. Yes, Mel hit it on the nail on the head. iPad says the idea is to be surprised that non Orthodox Rabbi person can concern a crowd of being Jewish. The support of the land of Israel, etc., is what I find surprising. <laughs> yes, uh, that is true. Sites fill in, quickly. Hyman says that Professor Chaim Soloveitchik, in his book on wine, he actually has two volumes on wine, one is called Traces of Hill and Hamline, just as Hector to get hot not from Gentile wine, thereby allowing Jewish lenders to actually foreclose on Stalmiena to their deaths, which to his logical conclusion would actually permit drinking Stalmiena while the Hill Line folks shut down. Yes, and as Chaim 
school that we had. The, the, the rezoning could have easily allowed our schools to get rid of the issues. They did all sorts of other things, which uh, based on less resources. But the, the term that, I, that uh, Professor Katz uses is ritual instinct. There was the idea that you would drink non-Jewish wine was so tied up with church, idolatry, and all these things, even if technically the real issue was, uh, uh, even if you could also cite the issue of uh, intermarriage, but there was such a ritual instinct that that they never could be brought to do that, even though they can come up with all sorts of other things. The only, what they did is when they needed, for example, trade for business, that they could find all sorts of retail for wine, and wine was necessity. So anyway, you're probably wondering, you know, what the hell does this Mark Shapiro lecture have to do with the news? And, you know, the bigger point is that uh, people are complex, situations are more complex. You know, people react differently in, in different situations, right? You, you don't want to overreact, just calling them all, you know, anti-Semitim, right? People are more than their labels. And uh, just as there are non-Jews with negative feelings about Jews, there are plenty of Jews with negative feelings about non-Jews. So different groups often have different interests. And uh, and some people we think are primarily motivated by ideology. No, they're primarily motivated by social media, getting clicks, getting attention, getting articles written about them. Not all that appears to be so is so. So Mark Shapiro was was talking about uh, famous forgeries produced by an Orthodox rabbi. So a lot of the news is is fake. 
forgery. What may look like an alliance of dark powers, not necessarily so. You simply can't sustain as a public figure, as a famous person in America, you can't sustain consistently an anti-Jewish attitude. You'll be crushed. And Jews are in a pretty safe, secure position in America today. So I don't think Kanye and Nick Fuentes are going to start leading some anti-Jewish pogrom. I loved listening to Shapiro. Just, I mean, the, the sophistication, the learning, you know, the, the grounding of both secular learning and Torah learning. There is wisdom assessing text, assessing personalities, assessing the news. Uh, just a, a model for a true seeker, you know, a mensch, a fair-minded. And uh, we can... We can all learn from that kind of example. Don't need to rush to judgment. And that'll do it for today. G'day mate, Forty here. What a wonderful time to learn some Torah with Mark Shapiro talking about the rise of reform and the rabbinic response. It's a history of uh, Chicago's Jewish gangsters. Now, the classic book is uh, from a real historian, uh, General Weissman Jocelyn. I mean, the person I'm with is also a historian, but I mean, in terms of the Jewish, uh, uh, the classic uh, work uh, from an American Jewish historian is Our Gang, Jewish Crime in the New York Jewish Community. But there's another one. <laughs> it's a very funny book. And some, by some one I've known uh, almost my entire life, and that's uh, Meyer Sugarman. Myron Sugarman. Now, the Chronicles of the Last Jewish Gangster, from Meyer to Myron. If you want to be entertained, uh, you can read it. You can watch the videos online. You can even watch it, believe it or not, in the rabbis of Boca Raton, just uh, two weeks ago, um, interviewed him. And uh, they had to say a few times in the video... Now, we don't condone being a gangster, but it shows you that there's this uh, uh, this fascination that we Jews have with the uh, the people who didn't go the straight and narrow. We all know about the coming and everything like that, but the, the gangster... Okay, so I'm a functionalist and a structuralist. I'm all about power of structure and function. Like, why do we have organized crime? Because it meets needs that are not being met by wider society. It can provide protection. It uh, provides strong in-group identity. It provides a way to you know, navigate around legal structures. It's uh, particularly powerful for immigrants, right, who find that the new world confusing, where there's a lack of enforcement, right, then then uh, organized crime can step in and uh, make the rules, right? So why did organized crime flourish after the fall of the Soviet Union? Because it met fundamental needs, right? Civil society had fallen apart. Like, why do we have rumors? And we have rumors 
because the official information is not adequate to our emotional needs. Right? We, we need more than the official story. And so we turn to rumors to try to speculate. If, if the official news doesn't make sense, then you know, we, we, need, we need some way of uh, trying to make sense of the world around us. And uh, that's also a function of organized crime. It's a way to try to help make sense of the world around us. So what's more important, your principles or your interests? Right? There's not a definitive answer. Sometimes principles are more important. Sometimes interests are more important. But if you have gangsters who are members of your in-group and they're doing powerful, important things for your in-group, then you have all sorts of incentives to you know, overlook their gangster behavior. Right? Sometimes there are problems in life, but uh, a gangster is best equipped to handle them. So your principles may not care for their methods, but your practical needs may be best met by, by gangsters. So if you've got a favorite football team, you probably want you know, law-abiding people on the team so they don't get suspended, but what you most want to do is to win. And uh, in the game of life, you know, living is usually the best way to go. So this is Mark Shapiro on the rise of reform in the rabbinic response. I hope again in uh, Rav Aron book, I, I, I listened to the talk and uh, I misspoke. The, the, the case where uh, it said that a, uh, someone, a Catholic, who said that uh, he's not opposed to all war, just opposed to the Vietnam War, and that was upheld, that was actually, uh, it was the Federal District Court of San Francisco. You get all the information, it gives you the number and everything on page 267. It wasn't a Supreme Court, which explains why Irv Ruderman could lose his case. Uh, someone asked me also at the end of the class, Rabbi Kelman uh, said uh, about the Shulchan Aruch and women and Tefillin that uh, it says Yeshlim Chos, you should protest, but it doesn't really say uh, uh, actual halachic violations. So let me show you uh, that. Here you have it in, uh, in Shulchan. So the tefillin are talked about in the Torah, the leather boxes with verses from the Torah in them, and you wrap them on your Jewish man, you wrap them on your left arm if you're right-handed, and put, put one around your head with a little box on your forehead. So traditionally, Judaism holds different roles for men and for women, a lot more commandments commanded of men than for women, because it's expected that women will be busy taking care of the kids and if you don't hold special roles for men they will tend to drop out of religion right? men don't like competing with women so at the Marubra State Park that's where we're at right now there's a there's a firing range near here I don't think they're shooting right now Uh, so men, uh, women are putter, but look at the Ramah. 
So I have a friend who grew up an Orthodox Jew who was dating, went on a date, took his tefillin bag, so it was called a tefillin date, and spent the night with the woman, got up in the morning and uh, was putting on his tefillin. When he looked over his shoulder, there was his girlfriend who was apparently a student at the Jewish Theological Seminary, which is the conservative movement in Judaism, their seminary. So she was apparently a rabbinic student. And he looked over his shoulder, and there she was putting on tefillin. But uh, generally speaking, highly unusual for women to put on tefillin. It's a, it's a traditionally a masculine role. So a Kohen, all right, that's the Jewish priest class. Usually people with the last name Kohen are members of the Jewish priestly caste, but not always. Uh, they are forbidden to attend to a set, to, to go to a cemetery because they're expected to maintain their focus on the living rather than the dead. And so there are places where a Kohen can't go, such as a cemetery. And then I said no. And I'll tell you why I hesitated. I think I, I realized that I was, I was listening to um, the, um, the class. And by the way, we have, there's two things in particular, two times that this comes in, is to play on our trips. One is when we go to uh, Morocco, one of the places we go to is uh, the, uh, the tomb of uh, the king, the kings. It's, it's, a, it's a sight to behold. And then there's something else. So I've spent thousands and thousands of hours listening to Mark Shapiro lectures. Uh, he's a scholar. He got a PhD from Harvard. He also got uh, his rabbinic certificate. He's a modern Orthodox rabbi. He specializes in modern Jewish thought. He's published excellent books, such on Jewish theology, changing the immutable on how Judaism rewrites its history. He wrote a biography of Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg. And I just love his mixture of Jewish learning with secular learning. And, and, and I love how, I don't know, I just love his work, man. And when I get tired with traditional methods of Torah study, I you know, study some Mark Shapiro and it gets me excited about Torah again. So I'm walking all around Sydney and listening to hour upon hour of Mark Shapiro lectures. 
many of them for a second and a third time. It just gets my brain going. It's uh, fascinating, it's good for my neshama, for my soul, for my brain, for my heart. Something which I didn't know the first time I went there, there's a synagogue in Toledo. Not Toledo, that's Ohio, Toledo, and uh, there's two synagogues there. Both of them used to, obviously, what you, they were confiscated when the Jews were uh, expelled, or even maybe, could be even before that, uh, during after the pogroms of 1391. Now, really, they should give it back to us, because uh, they took it from us, and this is part of our heritage, and as well, there's a lot of tourist dollars there, although uh, I don't think a lot of they're obligated to, believe it or not, because uh, it's, uh, there's been yeus, and Jews gave up hope, and it's, it's transferred a few different times. So, yeah, when you give up hope of recovering a lost object, it no longer belongs to you, according to Jewish law. I just never get tired of the ocean and the rocks. Australia, mate, the beaches are our cathedrals. ...ownership, but they should give it back, but they're not giving it back. So one of them, it's called the, the Transitos Synagogue, and um, after the first time I took a group there, I'm reading a book, and lo and behold, it talks about how knights were buried in there. You know, knights, K-N-I, knights. And uh, I had never heard that before. I didn't know anything. Uh, I contacted uh, the person who takes us around, a very uh, special guy, and uh, she investigated this, and she came back with the report that, no, there are no knights buried there. They had been removed in the 60s. So that was good. But she had been told by uh, one of the people who runs all the tourist sites that nevertheless, even though the knights were taken out, other non-Jews had been buried over the year. So what's your personality type? Would you get onto that ledge right below me? You're a risk taker. Would you not get onto the, uh, these rocks at all? Right. I think I'm, I think I'm moderate kind of in the middle. I think I'm a huge risk taker, but I'm not a huge scaredy cat either. Got a moderate fear of heights. But yeah, I know some people love to get right on the edge. I remember when I was a kid, my friends, meaning at about age 17, we, we climbed below this bridge and we were able to swing out and it was about a quarter mile drop below us. Right? So, we would just swing there with a quarter mile drop below. And uh, another crazy thing my friends did, which I did not appreciate, was they'd drive crazy in the rain and do you know wheelies and burnouts and uh, that scared me to death. And I'd scream at them, like, stop, I haven't even had sex yet. <laughs> so then you have an issue. Can you go in? Can Kohanim go in? So this takes us to uh, the Shohar. Shulchan Aruch says as follows in Yeridea Shin Ayin Beis it says in Sif Beis Kivri Ovdei Kohamim Nachon Mizaher HaKohen Milehaflet It's best it's better that a non-pebbed Kohen not go and not walk on them not be in the building with them with non-Jewish So non-Jews and completely secular Jews often think of Jewish law as incredibly inflexible and rigid and a straitjacket. But there's so much flexibility built into Jewish law and the way it is observed and the way rabbis instruct people to observe it. 
right? It is supposed to be something that enhances your life rather than something that diminishes your life, right? You're supposed to observe Jewish law so that you may live by the laws and that they shall be your wisdom in the eyes of the Goyim, to quote, I believe, uh, Deuteronomy. And so, yeah, there are often ideals, but if you can't live up to the ideal, then often it's okay to not live up to the ideal. That's Machmir means strict. Minhag means custom. Machlokas means controversy. Dispute. to say it's not an issue, so we don't go there, and uh, I'm glad I know about this now. What I was surprised to see. So, see how the rocks peel away? I sure wouldn't like to be up here when the rocks start peeling away below me. But it'd probably make for you know amazing video. So, Cohen isn't supposed to attend a funeral. It's not in the chapel or church. Let's say it's just in a, in a room. And he says as follows. He says that the Shulchan Aruch technically follows the lineage of Cohen, and therefore it concludes, quote, there is no prohibition at all for non Cohen to attend the funeral of a non-Jewish funeral. Because he says that uh, if it's, it's preferable not to do so, but he feels it's necessary as a social or professional formality. It's a good friend of yours or something, and uh, the family would expect it or look bad if it's in a funeral parlor. He says that uh, you can go. Good. Rabbis often want to try to make Jewish law as lenient as possible so that Jews don't feel like they're sinning. Because if people get too much of a sense that uh, they're just breaking you know, Jewish law at every turn, it will turn them off from attempting any observance whatsoever. So there's a significant movement within Judaism to make observance of Judaism as easy as possible. Because the Ikar Hadin, the halacha is that a Kohen, there's no issue of being the Tameh to a... Uh, uh, an so Tameh means impure, unclean. So I remember when a rabbi at an Orthodox synagogue brought me in and said, hey, you know, here you're writing about the porn industry and and he said, you know, I'm sure it's all very academic and that, but it's, uh, we just can't have that in our community. It's, and he's, he's reaching for a word and then he just says, Tame. Right? It's just impure. It's just, we can't have that kind of filth in our community. Non Jew. What I find a little strange about this, though, is he makes such a big deal about it. It's a chapel or a church, but in a funeral parlor, it can also be a religious ceremony. 
So a Jew's not supposed to enter a church, certainly not while Christian services are going on, because from a Jewish perspective, Christianity is idolatry for a Jew, though not necessarily idolatry for a non-Jew. Islam has a stricter monotheism, so Judaism does not regard Islam as idolatry. So when Princess Diana died, uh, the chief rabbi of the British Empire, Jonathan Sachs, he led a group of Jews to outside the cathedral. They did not go inside for the funeral. Super kosher. Tumantara is first to the impurity that yes. associated with I dead bodies. This is ritual impurity, it's not impurity as in dirty hands. It's a spiritual form of impurity. It's also a, it's interesting. The minor tractate. Just thinking about tractate smachot, and I said it's a uh, a post-Talmudic tractate. But then I started wondering, well, maybe is that really true? What do the what do the modern scholars say? I maybe what I'm saying reflects older scholarship. So I pulled out the Encyclopedia Judaica, which itself is not the most modern. We're talking almost 50 years old, and uh, it does say some scholars assign these tractates to the end of the Golden Period, but research, recent scholarship favors a much earlier date. And so the Encyclopedia Judaica was produced about 50 years ago. It's uh, largely a work of uh, secular academic Jewish scholarship. It's not, not a religious document. Okay, mate, 40 here. What a wonderful time to learn some Torah from Mark Shapiro here. Topic, the rise of reform and the rabbinic response, talking about the 19th century. This is talk number three. Uh, so I, I uh, don't know if it's correct that they're post-Talmudic. Uh, they, they weren't accepted as having the status of the Talmud, and obviously a lot of the information in there is from the Talmudic period, and maybe and some of it's later, perhaps, but uh, it, it's not necessarily uh, clear whether that's the case. I knew there were, I thought there was only one or two attempts on him. It turns out there were five attempts on his life 
before they actually killed him. Every group reforms uh, just over this time. Week on um, Rabbi Slifkin's uh, website, he even had a post on this. Five dangerous reforms in Orthodox Judaism. I think I would put these as reforms. Because you have to distinguish between the reforms and non reforms. Although I already told you about... So this is Natan Slifkin. And I think he was inspired or encouraged by Mark Shapiro to get a PhD. So, Natan Slifkin operates uh, rationalistjudaism.com. He's a he's kind of a centrist Orthodox rabbi who's written a lot about uh, evolution and Judaism. So last year, you might recall that uh, a reform that uh, was all over the uh, Hasidic world uh, during COVID. The whole idea that uh, you can have weddings of a thousand people and have uh, come to show with hundreds, hundreds of people. And before the vaccine and not be concerned, people are dropping dead every day. And now be concerned about that with Pikuach Nefesh of my I said that that's, we are seeing an example of reform Judaism before our eyes. Despite the fact that these people have long Bekashas and Payas and everything. But if uh, you feel that Pikuach Nefesh has to be pushed aside, is Pikuach Nefesh is Doha because you need to go to the Rebbe's Tish. I mean, that's a form of reform Judaism, no question about Tish is but, a meal for the Rebbe. So it comes down to, do you want to remain in the community? Right? If you want to evolve out of the community, then you can make all the reforms you want. If you want to reform within the community, you have to you know, make alliances with people. You have to get on the same page with people. Right? You have to submerge your, your ego. You have to build friendships. You have to listen, compromise. Right? You have to do a lot of work if you want to reform and stay within the community. Depending how much longer we go in this series, we'll see the Rav Shamsham Hirsch had reforms also. And other Gedolim had uh, reforms. Shamsham uh, Raphael Hirsch, founder of modern Orthodox what Judaism in Germany, 19th century. At, uh, this work. Rashal Berlin, we'll give the name Rav because uh, he, at least he was a rabbi, uh, but uh, Rashal. Shaul Berlin was a massive forger. A massive forger in. 19th century Germany. Berlin's the Sami Rosh, and uh, I, I gave you the introduction. And uh, so the book was published. And here's the title page. Uh, and uh, it wasn't long after the book was published, and of course everyone bought it because uh, you have all these responses from Rishonim there. Once they started reading it, it became impossible to imagine that one of the important Rishonim, the Rush, as well as other Rishonim, could have written what appears in there. And a huge campaign was then launched against Shaul Berlin, who already was in trouble for the work he published against um, the, the Torah Shippasil of uh, Rafal of, uh, of Hamburg. Uh, so all the rabbis 
started going up against uh, Shaw Berlin that uh, this could not be true, this had to be a forgery. They, I don't think they assumed that it was all forgery. They assumed he forged certain true vote. And the only one left standing for him was his um, father. The Hassam Sofer termed the book Kizve Harosh. That is not Kisve, the writings of the Rush, but the falsehoods of the Rush. Ramordechai Bennett of Nicholsburg. He, he sort of forgotten today among most people because uh, the Hassam Sofer's Hassan Sofer, who looked up to him, but Hassan Sofer um, then overshadows him. If you come with me to Central Europe, we'll see his kever. Uh, he wrote a sefer called the Parashas Mordechai. He really was a, a, a giant. Uh, uh, he also leads the attack against the Shalbrun. Today, all academic scholars recognize this work is a forgery. In fact, it's impossible to read the Bissam and Rosh in isolation from everything else we know about Shaul Berlin. How he, he leaves the rabbinate, he comes to Berlin, he uh, falls in with this Haskalah group. Uh, Haskalah is the Jewish and, Enlightenment. Uh, you have to understand it this way. But not all posts can recognize this. Bissam and Rosh continues to be quoted as an authoritative halachic work by Poski who either are completely unaware of the history. So just because you're a rabbi doesn't mean that you can recognize a forgery. Uh, just because you're a rabbi doesn't mean that you're more righteous or less righteous than any other profession. Doesn't mean you're more or less honest, that you're more or less nice, you're more or less ethical. Alright? So, rabbis, you can, can expect, depending on their education, they may have considerable knowledge in a certain area. Doesn't mean that they have knowledge outside that area. Alright? They are like, uh, any other class of intellectuals who, once they get outside their field of expertise, right, they can say smart or stupid things. And when I say unaware, that means they don't read acronyms, they don't know Mordechai Ben-Yed, So the acronym, talking about rabbinic sages, about the 13th, 14th, 15th century, the Rishonim, 11th and 12th century, great rabbis. Or they know, but they don't accept it. And as I showed you, a new edition of the Bissam and Rosh was published in 1984. Here's uh, my copy of it, and I, I showed you last class the link that you can all uh, buy uh, this Bissam and Rosh if you, uh, if you choose to. Right, so many people don't realize that this document's a massive forgery. So it's still quoted and cited. Uh, it's at Mizrahi Books, uh, and the editor of this who is a fine Talmud Chacham, his name is Ruven Amar, he uh, has a whole essay explaining why Shaul Berlin was one of the Gadol Yisrael. Meaning great, great rabbis of Israel. The Bissami Rosh, he knows nothing about Shaul Berlin's history and how he was in with the Hamaskilim. But that's, uh, he comes out firmly on the... So the Maskilim are the, those Jews in the 18th, 19th century who embraced secular learning. So you can be a Talmudic scholar and a Moscow. But generally speaking, those who embrace secular learning are not so learned in Torah. Those who embrace Torah learning are not so secularly learned. The side of Shaul Berlin. He sees them as falsely persecuted. Now, in the back of the book, this new edition, you have his notes. So it's kind of hard to imagine that these very smart people didn't recognize that this was a massive forgery. Right? But uh, a lot of people are book smart, 
but uh, not particularly wise to the ways of the world. Many pages, like 75 pages of notes, which are very helpful because he, he calls attention to a lot of strange ideas there and then tries to justify it, and he helps us understand some of the stuff that's going on there. Uh, the book has the Haskama of Meaning approval. Yosef. Now, Ravavad Yosef, he knows that the sun and rosh is forged, and he so the Fadi Yosef is probably the greatest Sephardic rabbi of the 20th century. Writes about it in the Omer, but he says that just like with the book of Ben Sira, the uh, Talmud says that you can take what's good in it. He, he says if there's a good flower in the Bissayim Rav. So I remember going to see Fadi Yosef speak, and has a reputation of being such a brilliant man. <laughs> My reaction was, if he's so brilliant. Why can't he speak English? <laughs> but Avadi Yosef is one of those rare, great rabbis who also had a touch for the common man. Like uh, soccer teams would come visit him before an important game. He liked uh, Egyptian music, man of the people, and a tremendous Torah scholar and savvy political operator. Oh, she could take it. Because of Shaw Berlin, you're not relying on his authority, but if he makes a good suggestion and how to read a text, uh, uh, you can use it. Uh, but you're not relying on the books per se. And as I said, there's a big debate among the post not among the academic scholars. Did he forge the entire uh, volume? Yeah. So, big forger, kind of a very weird, disturbing dude. And what's even more disturbing, the number of people who speak up for him. Listen to a little more here, Mark Shapiro, February 14, 2022, Lecture, The Rise of Reform, The Rabbinic Response, Lecture Number 3. Do you have an actual manuscript? Did he just put in his fake Jew I think uh, the former is the case. Um, the stipe work. In other words, I think that all the Jew the most of them are just run of the mill, not problematic, are done to provide cover. Now, the stipe work, very important figure, the stipe work of Yahudi the father of... Uh, he was approached by someone who wanted to write a history, and I mentioned this in Changing the Immutable. He was approached by someone who wanted to write a history of the Write a history for the Haredi about how bad Haskalah was and all the terrible things they did. So Haskalah was the Jewish Enlightenment, it really got launched in the 19th century as Jews started embracing secular learning. And of course, if you didn't do that, you have to write about Shal Berlin. What could be worse than a Moscow? So Shaul Berlin was an Orthodox rabbi and someone with secular learning and also a massive forger. William Askiel, uh, publishing a book with all sorts of phony heterim and shuvo to try to undermine tradition. So a heter and heterim refers to permissions. So a rabbi gives you permission, say, to listen to music during a period of the Jewish calendar where normally listening to music is prohibited, but in your case it's permitted because you're struggling with depression. And a true vote is a rabbinic response to a question. It could be a question about Jewish law, Jewish theology, Jewish philosophy, about life, politics. from the inside by attributing to the great figures like the Rush, halachic decisions. And people start relying on these halachic decisions. So, so that's pretty bad. Uh, but he didn't know how to deal with Shaul Berlin uh, because he didn't deal with someone who was uh, one of the big rabbinic it's not, it's not your normal thing to have a great rabbi who then goes to the dark side if you want to use uh, the Star Wars terminology. 
Oh, it's as normal as any other profession. Heretic. He's, he's one who knows the truth and then just goes off and rejects it all. Uh, listen to what the cipher says. He says, first, because of the honor due his forefathers, his father, his, his uncles, going back uh, generations, his, his, four, his great-grandparents, these are all Godoli Yisrael. Great rabbis. And it's a busha, it's embarrassment to the family to know that such a person came out of them. So that's the first reason he says not to write about it. The second uh, reason is, uh, I mean, this is on the this this sort of assumes uh, that uh, um, if you if you deal with someone like Charles Berlin, that somehow the honor of his forefathers is reduced. I, I don't see it that way. Uh, I think we should be sophisticated enough to know that uh, uh, look at it, look, Aaron, the great Aaron. <laughs> Some of his children didn't turn out so well, and uh, we can give other examples uh, also. Uh, I mean, Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't succeeded by his children. I mean, we have uh, we all heard about Esau, we heard about Yishmael, although maybe we should take Yishmael back, because Yishmael, uh, traditionally, he's thought to be also a Balchuva, and that's why you have an initial Yishmael. You even have uh, one of the great, the last great important halachic sage in Italy, and the guys in the first part of the ninth century, Rabbi Shmuel HaKohen Ablodino. Today you can never name a Kiddy Shmuel because the Arab Israeli dispute calls him a Kiddy Shmuel. But Yishmael is a kosher name. I'm a Rabbi Yishmael. You got it right there. You can't argue with explicit, you know, Talmudic statements. Uh, uh, I'm a Yishmael. We say it all the time. So, uh, uh, the second reason the Cypher says not to write about him is that uh, perhaps Shaul Berlin has already received his own in heaven. He's already received his punishment and he's now cleansed. So therefore, you're going to bring it up uh, that causes more problems. This, I have to say, the Mechilat... So unless you've experienced Orthodox Judaism or unless you've experienced uh, incredibly intense in-group identity, you don't know how great the pressure is to conform. Right? So... Intense in-group identity is wonderful as a source of strength and power. It's an effective tool at navigating life. It tends to make people happier, more effective. But it comes with tremendous disciplines and prices, such as restriction of personal freedom. You can't just do what you think is right. But, Kvodo, the type where this I don't understand at all, because you can say that then about any sinner. That you can't speak, we're not going to be able to speak about Geiger or, or Jacobson or any of the other people we're going to speak about. And so, like, Abraham Geiger and Jacobson were talking about the early reform rabbis in Germany in the 19th century. would say to me that there's a difference. Those people were heretics from day one, so uh, they're just bad. But here you have someone who was a Talmud Chacham and presumably a Tzadik, he becomes a heretic, so we assume that uh, he went back to his Gears of the Anderson, went back to his roots. But I have to say, I've never heard of such a thing like that, uh, that uh, uh, we, we all know about people who became heretics, and I've never heard it. You're not supposed to talk about them on the country. If you look at the Rambam and elsewhere, on the country, you're supposed to speak about them because Dafka, because they're heretics, you're supposed to expose them. But that's what uh, I think the Cypher says. Now, I, I think, think uh, support for that is in the Talmudic Tractate of Yonah 59b, 
although he doesn't say this, I think uh, the subtext and the sight words, everything he's saying, is that the Tamil Chachamim know all about this. And they know who Shalbrogan was, so they don't need to work. So, Orthodox life is, is segregated, right? There are those in the know, and there are the leading intellectuals, leading thinkers, right? And then there's the, uh, the common people who just... Uh, you know, fully occupied with earning a living and being with their friends and family. So not everyone is a is a scholar in Orthodox Jewish life. About, we don't need to worry about them using the Samim Rosh. The issue here is only for the masses. Do we need to let the masses? I mean, Joe Shmo and B'nai Brock, does he really need to know about this? That, that's the issue. And again, I would take issue with the sniper because I don't think all the Posty know about this. There's plenty of folks who don't know this story, and it could illuminate it for them. Now, the last two reasons the sniper gives, I think, are the most interesting and the most important uh, as well. He writes that discussing, you're going to write a book on the Hasmala, discussing the episode of Shal Berlin will be humiliating for those sages who were taken in by the fortune. Uh, there have been sages who are taken in. I think the sniper assumes that in the early, there's actually more today who are taken in. In, the, in Michelle Berlin's day, other than his father, I don't really know of anyone who was taken in. But as you get to more modern times, you have plenty who are taken in. So maybe that's what he was referring to. And he says, if you do this, it'll be embarrassing to those sages who uh, were taken in by the forgery. They were reflect um, poorly on them. Again, I have to say, I, that, that means that we can't discuss the, um, the Yerushalmi Kutshin. In a couple of weeks, we're going to speak to Rabar Hoberlander from Budapest. He's the world's expert on the Yerushalmi country. You know how many Gedolis were taken in by the Yerushalmi country? Many more than were taken in by Shal Berlin. Yerushalmi Kutchin, in the early times, it's published. I can show you, I have a copy of it. it was so there was a Jew, I think, in the 18th century, Sheptai V, at the height of his fame, fame, about a third of the Jews in the world believed that he was the Messiah, including many leading rabbis. And then Shabtai V ends up converting to Islam. <laughs> Pushed by the Hagos of the Marsham, the great Marsham, the Jose Dachron, they called him. And uh, also uh, Rishon Buber, the great academic scholar. And many of the Chavitz Chaim was taken in. The Chavitz Chaim starts wearing film or Ben Tom because of the Yerushalmi Kutshi. But then he gives, and the final reason this labor gives, is that, and this I find fascinating, the faith of the simple people, certain people, we should be simple people, will be weakened if they see that a great Torah star could become a heretic. Um, and he concludes by saying that an article... So the chief rabbi of Rome, I think, after World War II, ended up converting to Christianity. Uh, not many great rabbis have converted to Christianity. Write all about the terrible results of the Smella, but don't mention anything about Shaw Berlin and Torah scholars who were led astray. I think the last reason is, is interesting because, uh, look, for the simple people, not the people on Torah Motion, the simple people who uh, are listening to other talks, uh, they just assume that the more Torah you learn, the greater Tzadik you become, the greater Tamachacham, and that's uh, everything's great. And that's not true. Right? Just because you learn more Torah doesn't mean you're going to be a better person, a better husband, a better friend, a better member of the community. doesn't mean you're going to be more honest. doesn't mean you're going to be less addicted to pornography or to alcohol or to drugs. 
right? You learn more Torah or you learn more mathematics or you learn more physics just means that you're more learned in those particular areas. There's no inherent necessary accompaniment to this learning. And just learning about the Holocaust, it doesn't, doesn't make you a better person. Doesn't make you kinder. Doesn't make you braver. Doesn't make you more clear. If you actually expose them to someone who grew up in a rabbinic family, who was uh, a post-seik and a rav, and uh, a future decides Yisrael, and all the he goes off to the dark side, that they won't be able to handle it. Now, anyone who's sophisticated has heard of Acher. You know, Elisha ben Abuya. You've heard of other people in those circumstances. Of... So Elisha ben Abuya was a heretic in the Talmud, right? He he was friends with Rabbi Meir in in the Talmud, and he may have known uh, Rabbi Akiva as well. But uh, he lost his faith due to Jewish suffering at the hands of the Romans, the Bar Kokhba revolt. Louis Ginsburg, for instance. Uh... But, I mean, Louis Ginsburg, who knew more than Louis Ginsburg? Uh, but uh, the sideboard is saying that, that, you know, for the average... So Louis Ginsburg, a great Torah scholar, but a leader in conservative Judaism, right? He he broke away from Orthodox Judaism. In his community, this is something that uh, we don't want them to be exposed to this uh, this information. Incidentally, I almost said Rath Sa'ir, Clyde Trigger, it's a few we spoke of a number of times. But one of the things I discovered on my trip to Israel a few weeks ago, uh, I, want, I discovered lots of good stuff, including color pictures of Yuchiak of Weinberg. No one's ever seen it. They've never been out there. I'm going to put them on the blog post, not the next one, one after. And then you'll see these will then become the famous uh, pictures. Uh, no one's going to remember that I discovered it. I might put them on there, but that's okay. But I, uh, the reason I'm not showing you them now is because because I learned my lesson. Someone's going to pull it off the video and do what they did with Heschel, remember, and create the, the talus with the different colors and uh, put it out there. So everyone, and they took the Lieberman pictures I showed you, and they were going all over the Internet. Uh, and so uh, someone sent them to me and said, have you seen these pictures? I said, have you seen these pictures? I'm the one who put the pictures out there, uh, and thanks to one of our uh, listeners. And then I told the whole story on a blog post. But uh, I discovered with the ethical will. Yeah, people want people want the covered. Right? People people want the glory. People want the attribution. Right? Even if you're a great scholar, you still want the glory. That's just part of human nature. Chernovitz, believe it or not, Rav Zahir, when he was still in Berlin, but even then he had left Odessa, and everyone assumed already he had uh, he was no longer uh, among the, uh, the pious ones, and it's such a religious document to his family. He's going in for an operation, and he says to them, I might not come out of this operation, so I want you to remember, you know, always to be uh, proud of your Judaism, and uh, be aware that the most important thing is not material pursuits, but spiritual pursuits, and keep Eretz Yisrael close to you. He's a big Zioni. Uh, so what a what an ethical will. Uh, and there's a whole genre of ethical wills. I'm not going to reveal where I discovered this, because I don't want to get all these people are going to go and uh, take it out from under me. But uh, it, it's a great, great document. People are going to love this document when I publish this, because uh, it shows you the piety. Of Rav Sayer. Now, some cynic is going to say, "Well, what do you expect? He's going under the knife. He's having an operation, so now he's uh, he's focused on these things." Okay, it could be, 
But, uh, you know, Shlomo Pinnis, in uh, Zev Harvey's uh, memoir of Shlomo's uh, eulogy article, on Shlomo Pinnis, the translator of Moray Nevuchim, uh, and he was a complete atheist, uh, but a great scholar. Tells- so the Moray Nevuchim is Maimonides' work on uh, Jewish philosophy. how uh, even in the hospital at these last days when the nurse was there in the Jerusalem hospital and uh, Pinnis made some comment I guess and she said even now like even when you're on death's door you know this is your attitude so the nurses apparently were very impressed by my father's behavior and his attitude in his final days my father went into hospice with about you know, two, two or three weeks left to live obviously he was very weak uh, my father and I, we made our peace, you know, exchanging emails. And he was about, uh, oh, he was about to turn 90, so he did turn 90 before he died. But uh, according to the stories I heard, you know, his pure, spiritual, holy self shone through all the, the pain and the suffering. And it was very you know, easy to deal with. He had a positive mental attitude. He knew that it, he was dying. Attitude, and yep, that's uh, you know he was able to go uh, you know meet his maker without having any other feelings. Uh, so get so we're getting back to the the summing rush. There are these Moshe Kapo and another person. They do they put these books on uh, the computer and they do all these tests and they can show. Uh, one author, multi-authors, when it was written. They haven't yet done Basam in Roche, but when they do Basam in Roche, they will find uh, all sorts of problems. In my article on suicide in the world to come, I point out that uh, this concept that if you commit suicide, you have no share in the world to come is not found in any of the Rishon. It's, it's a much later idea. Well, not found in any of the Halakha Rishon. It's uh, an Islamic idea, so you have a guy from philosophical text that has it. So you can see these breaks in the rocks here. Now this is all going to fall away one day. I just hope it's not a day that I'm standing on top. Uh, the, the ocean's just going to keep pounding away and the rocks are going to keep caving and cracking and falling down to the ocean. Let me not be here. So this looks like we're on the moon, doesn't it? Aside from the whole ocean thing. It's possible that the rush or any Rishon, for that matter, could have, uh, could have said these things. Uh, and this is what, uh, what uh, the Mordechai ben Nat and Achas Sofer and so many others uh, went crazy about. Now, what I'm going to try to show in my article uh, is that uh, I found all sorts of little tidbits uh, scattered. Uh, you know, the forgers always like to leave little things. I think I've identified some tidbits as well. But uh, before looking at some of the chuvot, which I believe, and not I believe, but are reformist chuvot argumentation, I think it's not like only, and this is important, changing the immutable, I haven't seen other people manage this example, but I think it's quite significant. Uh, um, 
in uh, in the Basami Rosh, he has in one of the unsigned chuvos. Some are signed by the Rush, others are just unsigned. It states that Rabbeinu Tam, the great Rabbeinu Tam, uh, uh, declared that the scholars of his day, we're talking in France now, medieval France, should assemble in order to void the prohibition on non-Jewish wine. Why? Since Rabbeinu Tam, in quotes from Rabbeinu Tam, says that there's no, the wine that the non-Jews use is no longer connected to idolatry ceremonies. Already, that's a bit of a problematic statement because what about the Eucharist? But okay, so I guess you're supposed to assume that Rabbeinu Tam doesn't see it as idolatry. So here you have the rush, or well, not the rush, it's on sign, the Basami Rosh telling you that Rabbeinu Tam said that all the Rabbanim should come together and void the prohibition on uh, non Jewish wine because it's no longer used for idolatry ceremonies. The response continues that Rabbeinu Tam was convinced to shelve, to shelf in this idea, to reject this idea. Why? Because Rabbi Shimon, whoever this Rabbi Shimon is, pointed out to him that in the future, the wine could once again be used for idolatrous ceremonies. So, on the surface, there's nothing radical with this response, because Rabbi Tom has this crazy idea, but uh, he's convinced it's a mistake. So in the end, Rabbi Tom says, you're right, I retract it, and the response, and the conclusion of the tshuva is non-Jewish wine, so Forbidden. Say, well, that's a conservative chuva. That's a traditional chuva. But really, because the basic idea that the prohibition could be uh, voided has been raised, and it's raised in the mouth of none other than Rabino Tom. It's a forgery. Now, what does this mean? This is a forgery. Hundreds of years after Rabino Tom, seven hundred, eight hundred years, whatever it is, after Rabino Tom. When it's obvious that uh, Rav Shimon's concerned that maybe uh, once again they'll start to use wine and idolatrous ceremonies is not materialized, uh, the logical result would be to return to Rabbeinu Tam's original idea that today there's no reason to have a prohibition on non-Jewish wine. In other words, through this tshuva, and I don't think anyone has made this point, so I, well, I didn't change the immutable, I don't think anyone else did, at least I didn't see it, through this tshuva, which ostensibly is a machmir tshuva, Summing Rosh has subtly undercut the prohibition against non-Jewish wine, which was exactly Shalberlin's point. At the end of it, the whole reason for the prohibition is that maybe one day they'll start using it for idolatrous ceremonies. Well, it's been all 800 years, let's say, since Rabbeinu Tam. They haven't started using it yet. It's no difference, and there's no signs they're going to. So let's go back to Rabbeinu Tam's original point that uh, there's no need for it. So... Some, and, and you have other examples of this. And this is what I'm going to try 